Acts 12, verses 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door or guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. 
immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. What's up, church fam? How are we doing today? All right, two of you feel pretty good today. I kind of laughed at the... Uh, the um, comment about classical music. I saw a few hands go up. I know at least one. It was legit. But the rest of us, let's be honest. Everything we know about classical music, we learned from Bugs Bunny. Come on. That's like real. Or Die Hard, maybe, right? Uh, Anyway, we're glad to hear. What a great song, by the way. I love, I actually love that song. Uh, It lifts my soul so, so uh, deeply. And I appreciate uh, singing it that way this morning. It was fantastic. Um, uh, this, this last week was very interesting in that some images came out from the James Webb uh, NASA telescope that was shot out a long way, thousands and thousands of miles into space, and then was able to take images into our universe. Did you see these this week? Uh, and if you haven't seen them, uh, I'm gonna throw, we're going to throw a few of them up here on the screen, but they were spellbinding, like, like you just beyond comprehension. And, and all of these pictures just represent like a little slice of what is out there, but they were just mesmerizing. Uh, here, here's the first one. This, this is actually a landscape of what is called some, th- those mountains. It, I saw this said it was a landscape of mountains and valleys speckled with glittering stars. It's actually the edge of a, a nearby young star-forming region. In other words, this is actually dust that is out there in the, the, the universe that is the birthing place of stars. And these stars are being formed as this dust comes together, uh, formed from dust that was left from supernovas that exploded in previous years. And these supernovas that exploded then turn into the energy that creates new stars. Uh, and man, what, I mean, like, that, that's the sort of thing you put on your uh, screen saver or your, your background because it's just amazingly beautiful. The second image is a picture. Check this out. That is a picture not of stars. What you're actually seeing there is a shot way out into the universe of galaxies, of, of other galaxies. So you understand that we're part of the Milky Way. We're you know, one planet that revolves around one star in millions of stars. That is a galaxy called the Milky Way. These are shots of other galaxies. The, the number of galaxies, for a long time, like it, it was thought we were the only galaxy, and then we realized there were other galaxies. Now it's, it's hundreds and thousands and millions of galaxies that exist in our universe. And this is just one little shot of galaxies that are way, way out in the distance. And, and the, the vast size of this universe that we live in is just mesmerizing. This third, third image here uh, is an image of, of what's called Stefan's Quintet. So, so what you actually see are five galaxies that are there. The two that are really close. And then, so, so seen through a telescope, these are actually five galaxies that are close. Okay, now the one that is to our far left here is actually 40 million light years away. That's close. The speed of light traveling for 40 million years is what we're able to see there. 40 million light years. The other four, the four that are more to the right, 
are closer to 190 million light years away, and they are actually working together in, a, in what, was what the, the, the scientists are calling a dance. Uh, of these colliding galaxies are pulling and stretching one another in a gravitational dance. But th- that's just, that's five galaxies and then others that you can see, other stars and galaxies out there in the distance that you can see. And I don't know if you saw these, they were just mesmerizing. For me, it was a moment to be reminded of a few things. One is my insignificance. I like to feel important, uh, but it was easy to see that I am not. But the second is to, re- to just come to grips again with the fact that when we talk about our faith, when we talk about who Jesus is, when we interact with the idea of God, that our God is an awesome God. He is majestic and and powerful, that God created the universe. And until now, what what you just saw up here are aspects of the universe that up until this week, some of them, nobody had ever seen them except God himself. In other words, God created it for God, for his enjoyment and his alone until now. And now for us, it is a chance to be reminded of the power and the majesty of the God we serve. Uh, one of the things that is going on is that there is some writing. I, I read an article in an, uh, a, an evolution-based uh, periodical, and the article basically was saying, I think we might be wrong that more and more people are seeing in, as they peer into the universe the absurdity of trying to believe that this all happened by natural chance and random process and that there has to be something greater than us behind this. And we've been saying that all along, right? But, but I did find it interesting this week as I was listening to some of our leaders and people start talking at some of the rhetoric that was going on because what I began to hear uh, is this sort of thing. Man, as we look through this telescope, let me give you the message. I heard this from a couple of places, so here it was. When you look through the telescope, let me give you what the message we should take away from this. We are awesome. And I was like, wait, what? Man, to, to be able to create a telescope that can look into the universe and see this, that proves that we are something. And I was like, that is not the message I'm getting from looking at these pictures. Now, I get it. In the moment, they were applauding and celebrating the, the, the fact that we do have engineers and scientists and people who are able to create something like this. And that, that is to be celebrated. We wouldn't be able to see it. But I literally heard one person who was a leader say that the, 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 the most important message that we can get from seeing these images is to remind ourselves that there is nothing we can't accomplish. And I thought, That is not the message, because let me tell you one thing we can't accomplish. We may be able to look through the telescope, but we are not going there, right? There there was a little bit of an absurdity in the rhetoric that I was hearing as, for some reason, rather than pausing and being in awe of, of fearing the Lord and finding glory in the God who made this, of finding the, the insignificance of our lives and the, the beauty of embracing something way bigger than ourselves, we still find a way to thump our chest and go, man, we're awesome. And, and there's a sense in which that competing understanding of our humanity is always in a dance, is always at stake, it's always alive and well in our culture. 
And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you have come here, and on a weekly basis, we, we lift up the glory of the God who revealed himself in the creation of all things, even the universe. And the more we know about the universe, the more it ought to drop our jaws and have us singing songs like the one we just sang and have us lifting our voices, right? And this God has chosen to make himself known in his word and in creation and through this glorious story of the gospel and the God who made what we just saw, the God who made those galaxies has chosen for us by his grace and for his glory to make us, to create us in his image and then to come near to us in his redemption, in his salvation, in his purpose of redeeming and saving us because he sent himself into the world in the person of Jesus, right? And, and so we come here today holding on to that, wanting people to know that, proclaiming that in a world that keeps wanting to push that message down, that wants to call you to a different understanding of your own humanity and our, our place in the world, that keeps wanting you to see your own worth and your own greatness rather than living in the fear of the Lord. In, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, what, what the, the writer of Proverbs is saying is if you want to live a wise life, you want to live a life that has purpose, meaning, and, and, and navigates this world well, the starting point is to be in awe of the God who made you, to have a, a reverential fear of the Lord. And, and I've been started reading Proverbs in my own personal devotional life, just reading through this uh, amazing book that is filled with wisdom. And I came across this. I'm just going to read this. Long, it's a longer passage, but I want you to hear it. Hear the contrast between the person who fears the Lord and finds wisdom and the person who doesn't. Because what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that divide is very real. Here it is. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Now, just real quick. I'm not preaching this text, but I want you to understand what we're reading. The author of, of this book, Solomon, at this point, is saying... Listen, wisdom's that hard to find. It's there. But what happens is we have chosen willfully and because of our lostness to be blinded to this and scoffers are not seeing, they're not looking through that telescope and going, whoa. They're looking through that telescope and going, huh, I, I'm awesome. And so he says, scoffers uh, and, and simple ones delight in their scoffing. Fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, then distress and anguish come upon you. Then you will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, diligently 
but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's just an amazing passage of saying, man, there's kind of the, the gospel path where we focus in on see the beauty of Christ and we hear the wisdom of God in our lives. We understand that he has a design, a purpose, a path for us, and we walk in that path. Or we become the simple, the scoffer, the, the hater, the, the person who, who finds all kinds of ways to make myself great and not honor the God who made me and, and try to push against him, either by denying his existence or recasting him so that I get to be my own God. And, and the path of those two has both a path and a destiny that is very clear in this text. And the reason is I was, I was struck by this passage this, morning, this week is because I knew where our text went. This is an interesting text in the book of Acts. It's an interesting story. First of all, because it's got some humor in it. It's kind of funny. But second, it, it kind of is an, is an excursus. That like, it's almost like the end of chapter 11, which tells us about the church in Antioch, which we haven't talked about next week, because what we're going to do is we're going to do one sermon on this church in Antioch next week and look at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 13. But, but Antioch is the most important city in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. It's the fourth largest city in the, in the Roman Empire at the time, but it's the second most important city, becoming the capital of the Roman Empire on the eastern half of the empire. Uh, it becomes later known as Constantinople. It's Istanbul, Turkey to, or, uh, Istanbul today. And, and so you have this place over here that becomes a super important city all through history, there is a growing, thriving church there, and we pick it up there uh, and go this. But what happens is that those two, two chapters, if we took chapter 12 out and pulled those two chapters together, it'd be a nice flowing narrative. But Luke decides to pause and give us chapter 12, which is an excursus, and he looks very specifically at one guy and what he is doing in the church. And that person is a man that, that is named as Herod. We see him mentioned in verse 1 here of Acts 12. So if you have your Bibles, grab it. Look at this. And it says, At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, what verse 1 actually gives us a time marker. Uh, the, the story of Christianity begins. There are differences of opinion whether Jesus died in 30 or 33 A.D. Okay, uh, but depending on what you're saying here, what we know is that Herod, this guy we're talking about, reigned in Israel from 41 to 44 A.D. So we've had uh, somewhere between 10 and 13 years of the Christian movement from the day of Pentecost until where this story happens. And in that, 13, that, that 10 to 13 years, what has happened in the story of Acts is you began with just a small band of people, 120 people in an upper room praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on them, waiting for the power of the God who created uni the universe to fill them. And he does. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They go out in the city of Jerusalem. They begin proclaiming Jesus. They begin to, to preach and declare and bear witness of 
what Jesus Christ had done for them. The fact that God had sent his only son to come into the world who laid down his life on their behalf and his death is the forgiveness of their sins, the restoration of a relationship between them and God. It is the path to peace and freedom. And they're proclaiming this and then declaring that this Jesus, whom was crucified in Jerusalem, rose again. He rose from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave forever. They have become witnesses of this. Day one of Christianity, 3,000 people believe. A few weeks later, over 5,000 people are in the church. Uh, just several months later now, there are multiplied thousands of people, so many they can't count anymore, but even priests are becoming believers. Religious leaders who had rejected and despised Jesus are joining this movement. But it was in Jerusalem, and, 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 and it took persecution at the hands of this guy named Saul to cause the church to scatter and now the gospel left Jerusalem and now it is spreading all over the world. It is in Antioch, this Roman city, there is a church. There are Christians and churches in Judea, the larger region. There are Christians and churches in Samaria. It is cross-racial boundaries. And then the last chapter we saw the conversion of the first Gentiles in the town of Caesarea, which is where uh, Herod is going to end up in this story. There are believers in Jesus in this Roman city in the Middle East now, Caesarea. And the gospel's advancing, and now the number of people who are following Jesus seems to be, it, it, not seems, it is in the tens and maybe hundreds of thousands by now. I mean, it's, it's growing exponentially there in the Middle East. There are growing number of believers very quickly but what might kill it? And it seems like the way to end Christianity is to persecute Christianity. And so what happens is Luke gives us this side story that is a beautiful, crazy story to show us something is going on in the persecution. Because up until this point, all of the persecution of Christianity had come from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Therefore, if we leave Jerusalem, they don't, have, they don't bear a threat. We can get away from it. But what Luke is showing us in this story is he is showing us now that the man who is ruling and reigning as king on behalf of the Roman Empire has turned his sights on the destruction of Christianity for political reasons. And if that happens... There is no place safe. What Luke does is he writes the story that tells us in Luke 12 how this guy named Herod turns up the heat and what happens in the story. He writes it for us to know the story. He writes it then by the time the 60s when Luke writes this entire work. By the time, uh, about 20 years later, that Luke finishes this work, Nero is the emperor in he is not the emperor here, Claudius and 
Uh, the, Caligula are the emperors during this story, if you want to know names. But then 20 years later, Nero, and Nero's already showing signs of being a little bit nuts. And he turns his angst towards Christianity and the Christians. The, 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 the danger of living for Jesus in the Roman Empire is going to heighten significantly. Luke is writing for those people to tell them, listen, let me tell you a story that will not win. And so he tells them the story of Herod. It's also written for all of us because we live in this tension that we know that if we follow that path that, that Proverbs laid out for us, the path of walking with Jesus, the path of trusting in him, the path of bearing witness, there is always potential that it will cost us much. And, and folks, this is going on. Like those of you who know Jesus, you just got to know that the cost of following and bearing witness of Jesus is, is going up in our culture. And it's easy for us to pull back and cower and be afraid of, of the potential loss of political and social clout, of, of what might happen at our jobs, what might happen in our neighborhoods and with our friends. If we seek, seek to live faithfully. Who is this Herod? Because this whole chapter is about, well, he's named, he's not named in this text. We're just told that he is Herod the king, but he is a guy that is named Herod Agrippa the first. So I got to tell you a little bit about the Herods and tell you about this Herod. The Herods were a family of Middle Eastern rulers who ruled on behalf of Rome in what is modern-day Israel, that would be Judea and Samaria, and uh, also into Syria, way to the north. They, they ruled on behalf of Rome uh, as a family of kings. They were from the Middle East, but they got highly connected, starting with Herod Agrippa's grandfather, highly connected with Roman rulers, and for the whole period of the whole story of the New Testament, Rome... It had, there was a lot of tension in Israel and specifically in Jerusalem between Jerusalem and Rome. There was, with one exception that I'm about to tell you about, there was never a period where there was actually peace where the people who lived in Jerusalem were content with the Romans ruling them. And so there's always uprisings and, and battles. There's groups of people like the Zealots who are trying to cast off Roman rule, trying to get peace there. And one leader after another loses his position because he's not able to maintain peace in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, getting uh, appointed to the post at Jerusalem was like suicide for your job, right? If you wanted to gain political power and become somebody, uh, taking the, the, the job in, in, at the post in Jerusalem uh, what would have been the quickest way to get clout if you could pull it off, but nobody could. And, and so what happens is this, this group of rulers in the Middle East, sometimes they would rule over Jerusalem. Sometimes uh, Rome would send governors because they wanted somebody with the stronger Roman influence. But over the, the, the decades, there were multiple leaders, and there are six of these Herods in the Bible. Starts with Herod the Great, who we know because he killed all the babies in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus, right? In the book of Matthew. He was kind of a nut job. Uh, he killed several of his own family members, including the father of Agrippa. But Agrippa is his grandson, who's had his dad killed by his grandpa 
because he was a threat to his power when he was just a little kid. And then his grandpa sent him to Rome to learn. And Agrippa actually went to Rome and began to learn in Rome. But he was educated in Rome, and he actually was educated right next to two of the people who eventually became Caesars, Roman emperors. He developed friendships and relationships. He became very astute and very, very uh, wise when it came to politics. And eventually, because of the relationships he had with Caligula uh, and uh, uh, the other Roman ruler, and my brain just went, but anyway, uh, with this other Roman ruler, uh, Claudius, there it is, and it was in there. That's what happens when you get old, like the the, the mainframe starts slowing down and can't keep up with your lips. Uh, Anyway, uh, his relationship, he ended up being first the king and ruler over Syria, and eventually was given rulership over uh, all of what is modern-day Israel, including Jerusalem, meaning that his rule and reign in Israel was equal to, if not a little bit greater than Herod the Great, his grandpa, which means that he probably had the largest area of rule. Now, what Rome did is Rome would set up kings that were local, who would be loyal to Rome, But since they were local, they would have a little more political clout in their cities and in their regions. And so Herod figured this out. Agrippa figured this out. He moved his palace from Caesarea for a season to Jerusalem, his seat of power. And he ruled from Jerusalem. And that got him in good. He began to really care for the the political desires and wishes and the thoughts and religious issues that were raised by the Jews. He made sure that all the coins no longer bore images of the Roman gods, but he put like pictures of wheat and pictures of things from nature on on the coins that were used in Jerusalem, which was a big political win. And he does all these things to get this political clout. And and because of the stuff that he did, including starting to go to the temple regularly, including reading the book of Deuteronomy out loud uh, in public settings and things like that, he gained favor, a lot of favor in the city of Jerusalem among the religious leaders in this short time that he served. And it led to the only season of peace in Jerusalem with Rome that ever happened in the biblical story. So now, man, he is moving up the political ladder in Rome, being honored for the things that he is doing by maintaining peace in the city. Meanwhile, as he maintains peace in the city, uh, he is gaining favor with the Jewish people. And what we have is in the middle of this story, Luke tells us what's happened. Now, this is one of the things, there is, along with this story, this story of, of Augustus, of, of uh, I'm sorry, of uh, Agrippa, There is something beautiful about Acts 12 from God's providence. Because Luke writes Acts 12 and tells us this story. But this is, in in all of Scripture, this is one of the clearest proof passages that these men, including Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us truthful, accurate history. And the reason this is true is because There are multiple first and second century historians, most notably a man named Josephus, who tell us the same story that is here. 
who explained to us who Agrippa was, who Herod was, the sort of things that he did, his move from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and his death. And all of this is actually verified by other historians, and we see that Luke is telling us truthful story. But he is helping us see that this truthful story, while set in history, has theological implications, that God is doing something in the story. And so what we have here is this guy named Herod who is... The, the, like he represents Rome in Jerusalem. He is the arm of the Roman Empire. And verses 1 and 2 say this. Look at it. At that time, Herod the king uh, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And as he laid violent hand, hands, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when, it, when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the, the days of the unleavened bread. In fact, in other words, what we see in the story is that here comes Herod. Herod lays hands on Christians. He kills James. Who is this James? He is James, the brother of John, the fisherman who Jesus said, follow me, and they left their nets and followed Jesus. He is the son, one of the sons of thunder that we see in the gospel. And now he has been executed by the sword, which is prescribed in Deuteronomy as a way of saying that like you killed somebody by the sword when they had led the nation to a different God. Is a form of execution that the, 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 now the religious leaders and the Jewish people in the city are applauding what Herod has done for them by taking out one of the Jesus people. And now James becomes the first apostle who gives up his life for the cause of the gospel, for being a witness of Christ. And when he sees that it pleased the Jews, he goes and arrests Peter and throws him in jail. And what we have is a crazy story of an escape, of a lot of other beautiful moments, and the ultimate demise of Herod, because the Bible is trying to lay a very simple truth. In fact, John Piper said it like this. Uh, author, theologian, pastor John Piper said it like this. He said, this is actually a very simple passage. If you oppose God, you will lose. But if you stand at Jesus' side, you will win. And that's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see that if you're a follower of Jesus, as you stand at Christ's side, it may feel like you are insignificant. It may feel like you have no clout in the culture. It may feel like all of the cultural forces are against us. But if you stand with Jesus' side, you will win. And if you choose to walk away from Jesus, to abandon the gospel, to, to side with the culture, to give your, your, your beliefs in that sort of thing, that ultimately there is a promise that it's not going to go well. And that's what happens with Herod. And so in the midst of this, there is this simple call to us to stay faithful. And what we see in the story, and this is what I want you to see, what we see in the story is that there are three types of power in the text. There are three types of power that we see in the text. And in that, these powers that, that show up in the text, it is here where we see the true source of power reigning through in a culture that feels like it has all the clout. When Herod is claiming victory and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are cheering, it feels like that is where true power lies. But Luke wants us to see it does not. It does not. And so what happens in the text is beautiful. And the first power we see is the apparent lack of power in the church. The apparent lack of 
Powering church. Peter is arrested. Verse 4. And when he, when he, meaning Herod, had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending at the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in pr- prison, but earnest prayer was, for, was made for him to God by the church. So here's what's going on. It says four squads. A squad is four soldiers. So four squads of four soldiers are, are given charge to Every three hours, rotating the guard, he is put in the most secure aspect of this tower prison that is on the corner of the temple grounds, where he is being guarded by four squads of four soldiers who are rotating every three hours. And what we're told in the, in the story is that Peter then is chained to two of the guards, with two guards standing sentry at the two, the, 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 the uh, room that, that is the prison cell, and then the gate that is out in front of it, that, that prison guards are standing there. And Peter is never in a moment where he is not chained to two guys and being watched by two other people who are Roman soldiers on behalf of Herod, who is the king in the Middle East. And we're told that, that in this story, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the, the, the seven-day festival after the Passover. And in Jewish law, nobody could be executed during the Passover. This is the reason Jesus is, uh, they make sure he is dead before sundown in the story of the cross. It is uh, uh, part of this, the, the whole story of God's people that if there is going to be an execution, we're not going to do it during this celebration of God's deliverance from slavery. And so we're going to wait till the end of that. And what we're told in the text is now it's the night before the last day. Tomorrow morning, we are taking Peter out in front of the people and we're going to do the same thing to him that we did to James. And it feels like all hope is lost. Where, the, where does the power lie? What's going on? And so what you have is a prize fight. You know, think boxing. You know, if you have any boxing fans, you know, in this corner, weighing 800 pounds and undefeated, Herod Agrippa. Boo, boo, boo. Hey, he's got like his cut doctor is the Pharisees. His, his uh, trainer is the Sadducees. He's got the whole Jewish people behind him. He is in this corner. Dun, 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 dun. And in this corner, weighing 18 pounds, soaking wet, is a group of people on their knees in a house. It's a mismatch. What hope does the church have? What what can they do? If they try to fight, if they try to push against this, they will all be wiped out. If they try to politically protest, nobody will listen to them. If they fight for political power, it will mean the end. What can they do? They do the only thing they can do. They come to a house and they get on their knees and they begin to pray. And we look at this. I mean, how many times have you felt this? That the whole culture, everybody around us feels like they are pushing against Christianity. The deeper we go in, the more we feel like we have to lose. And the more it seems like there is really no hope for any change. And maybe the reason that we in America are struggling to see the advance of the gospel is because in the midst of a culture that is turning against Christ, we are fighting the culture instead of getting on our knees together and crying out to him in unison. 
This is what, like, it seems like a mismatch. The king representing Rome against the people who are on their knees. It is a mismatch. But we know here which side actually has the upper hand. Right? These helpless people are doing the only thing they can do. They're praying, God, we lost. Now, I don't, don't take from this that, that when James was arrested, they didn't pray. They probably did. And, and James died. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that's not a loss. Yet at the same time, they're crying out on behalf of Peter, God, save him. God, rescue him. They feel powerless, yet they find the place of great power. John Piper has said this, and I quoted him in his book, Desiring God. This is probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayers for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. Our field commander, who is Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission to go and bear fruit. He handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. But what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. There's no urgency, no watching, no vigilance. No strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses, cabins, boats, and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts and cushions in the den. This church is desperate, and they do the only thing a desperate church can do. They begin to pray. And listen, our neighbors and our friends and even our children are beginning to buy into the lies that our culture is telling us. They're telling us that that Christianity is bad for our culture. They're telling us that there are, are evils coming from the church. They're telling us that Jesus didn't really exist. And if he did exist, he was nothing more than just a good man. They're telling us all kinds of things. And people are buying into it hook, line, and sinker. And some of some of the um, criticisms towards us as Christians is authentic. Yet Christ is true. And his witness, the church rings forth. May, may we be a church that gets here. But, but here's what I, I, I fear hope, I'm not sure which, one, which word I want to use right now, that we may not turn to this type of prayer until we have lost all political clout and there is a Herod who is ready to stamp us out. Let's not wait till then. Let's, let's start begging God to save our neighbors and friends. Let's start begging God to help us be the wit witness to the gospel that he's called us to do. Let's ask God to make us faithful. There is this temporal power, or this seemingly lack of power in the church. And I love this story. The story is really beautiful. Because what they're doing is they're praying, and while they're praying, God does this crazy miracle. He sends his angel. Here's, you know, Peter, he's asleep. Which I love that. Peter is the last night of his life, but he's, he's content with whatever the Lord's going to do in his life. So he, he goes to sleep. He's chained to two guards, 
An angel shows up and tells us he smote him in his side. The word used here is used later for the way God hit King Herod. Same word, but he like doesn't just tap him, hey, Peter, wake up. He like kicks him in his ribs. Hey, boy, wake up. A light shining, the angel of the Lord, which if, if you read enough Bible, you realize that's not just any random angel. This is the, the angel of the Lord. This is the one that God sends to fight battles for his people, is waking Peter up. Peter had, like, goes into this, he, he thinks he's seeing a vision, but meanwhile his chains fall off, and the two guys who are chained to him either are put into a trance, or I, we're not told, they just don't know what's going on. They walk by two centuries, and they have this giant gate, and that giant gate turns into the first automated door. That's what the text says. It, it actually used a Greek word that we get our word automated from, that it opened on its own. It was an automated door. In other words, all of a sudden it just opened and closed and locked again. And Peter is outside the city now, right? He's outside the, uh, th- this gate leading from this prison in the city street and the angel leaves him. Now he's on his own. And finally he's like, oh, that wasn't like a dream. I wasn't like having this weird vision, like a dream, hoping I would get set free. And no, this is real. I'm by myself in the city. I better get out of here. And so he does, you know, this whole sneaking through the city. He finds this house of Mary, knowing that the church probably was there, at least some Christians maybe, and they're praying for him. And then I love the story. He walks up and this house of Mary, who is the mother of John Mark, this is there are two people kind of introduced like Luke does where he just throws their name out and then they come back. And this is one of them, John Mark, later James, a different James is named, and that's the half-brother of Jesus who's mentioned. But, but here's G, uh, Peter on the outside of his gate knocking. Now, meanwhile, the church is inside. Oh, Lord, our, our leader, Peter, we, we need him delivered. Please, God, let him go free. God, do a miracle. Do something. They're crying out on behalf of Peter, and Peter's at the door. And then this sweet little girl, this sweet little, like, probably an older teenager who has a job in the household, comes and says, who is it? Now, they're a little bit nervous. Like, Herod's been hunting people down and killing them. They're, they're, they're a little nervous. She's like, who is it? And he's like, it's Peter. And she's like, wait, who? It's Peter. And then I love what the text says. In her joy, she left him there. (laughs) What kind of friend is that? She runs back in the house going, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. Peter's at the door and they are praying. So so you got to picture this because... Y'all, this is so me, okay? This is so me. They are on their knees, God save Peter, let him free. We're so afraid. Are you there? You seem silent. What's going on? Help us. And here comes Rhoda. She runs and she goes, you're not going to believe it. Peter's at the door. And they go, you've been smoking weed, haven't you? You're a little crazy. She's nuts. And she goes, no, no, no. It's Peter at the door. And they go, oh, it's probably just his angel. Now, that's not just a, that was an ancient belief. So please do not go to this text and create a theology of guardian angels. It's what people have done. It's not what the text is for. It was an ancient Jewish belief that we had, that people would have an angel and the angel would visit people when they were killed. 
This is not the bold praying church who believes the God of miracles. This is the church that's at the end of itself crying out to God and can't even believe it when the miracle is happening. Yet, they're on their knees and God is faithful. You ever feel like that when you're praying? You ever feel like, I don't see anything happening, I've lost my faith, but I'm just going to keep praying. And even when it's happening in front of you, you can't hardly believe it. That's okay. Hold on to Jesus. And so, <clears throat> finally, they run back, they open a door, Peter walks in, and, and so they do what people do. Now, we, we live in these houses that have now soundproof walls, but when I was in Haiti a few years ago, uh, there was a World Cup soccer match going on, and Brazil was in it, and Haitians loved the Brazilian World Cup's team. And when, when Brazil scored a goal, I don't care where you were in Haiti, you could hear these houses erupting in cheer and applause, okay? Open air houses in, in, in ancient cultures or in third world cultures, they don't have baffling in their houses. When, so, so they start to erupt with some noise and Peter's like, I just got free from jail. You guys need to get quiet. And they're like, oh, oh, we're sorry. And what we're told is that Peter tells this beautiful, miraculous story to these group of people. They celebrate God's goodness and grace to them. And Peter goes on. This seemingly powerless church has seen the power of God to rescue and to save again. And they are reminded to hold on to Jesus, right? But not only do we see the seemingless, seeming powerless church who really is the mismatches on their side, we see the temporal power of a king. Verse 20 through 23 tell us about the demise of Herod. What we're told in the story is that, um, that Herod uh, had moved to Caesarea. Like after Peter is let free, he executes a few of his soldiers, but he has lost this prized moment to gain political, political clout. And so he leaves Jerusalem and moves back to Caesarea. Josephus tells us it was this, at this point that he stopped any attempt to be Jewish and became full-blown Roman and didn't care what the Jews thought anymore. He just thought he had absolute power. And there's a neighboring company, country, Tyre and Sidon, who were a border, like, like they had uh, a region, they, but their whole uh, dwelling was by the sea. They depended on the rich, fertile land that was governed in northern Israel by uh, Herod, and so they are desperate for food. Herod gets mad at them. They come running to him, and, and what happens in the story is that Herod, then we're told in the text that he puts on his royal regalia. This is where Josephus give us, gives us a really detailed account of what happens, because here's Herod, and this is within a year to two years after the event uh, earlier in the chapter, but here's Herod, and Josephus tells us that what he did is he put on it, the royal regalia he put on was actually this crazy suit that was made of silver. It was silver everywhere. And what he does is he takes his throne, his seat, on a festival where they were doing something like a mini version of the Olympic Games to honor Caesar. And, and it was a way for everybody who had to show up to acknowledge allegiance to Rome. And here's these people from Tyre and Sidon who show up. They join in this crowd wanting to be uh, uh, in right relationship with this guy. And they begin this chant because what happens is he's sitting there. The sun hits this silver suit and it like just lights up everybody. He is like glowing. And, and both Luke 
and Josephus tell us how the crowd began to say, you are a God. You're not just a man. And Josephus tells us that, that he neither rejected nor silenced the crowd when he was doing this. Now, when he was younger, he actually spent some time in prison. Herod did. He had this moment where he saw an owl right outside his jail cell. And he had some nutty guy look at him and say, ah, that's a sign from the gods that, that you were going to have prosperity. And it was just shortly after that that he was released from prison. But the guy also told, told him, if you ever have another appearance of an owl, that will mean that your life is coming to an end and that the gods are judging you. And what's crazy about this moment is that the sovereign God of the universe lets this happen. He looks up while these people are chanting, you are a God, and he sees an owl. And he turns around to his, his people and says, this is a sign that my life is about to end. And right then he had a massive pain in his belly, fell over, was taken to his quarters where he never had the pain stop, and five days later he breathed his last. And what Luke tells us very clearly is that this was, again, the, the Lord sending an angel. Verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. This temporal power of a king always ends up with him being eaten by worms. Always ends up there. And, and, and in the moment, they feel sovereign. They feel omnipotent. And human kingdoms have risen and fallen, and many Kingdom after kingdom after kingdom has sought to put an end to Christianity. And kingdom after kingdom after kingdom has fallen by the wayside. And evil, wicked rulers who killed Christians and tried to stop the spread of the gospel are now being eaten by worms just like Herod. The, the temporal power. Listen, I don't care what comes in the next... 20 or 30 years, young people listen to me for a second. It is probably going to be way harder for you to walk with Jesus than it was your parents in this world. And you will be told over and over again that you need to get on the right side of history or you will lose all your clout, all your position, all your prestige in this culture. Listen to me, those people will not endure. Any power that comes is temporal, it is short, and they will be eaten by worms, but Christ and his kingdom will endure. Which brings us to the last statement. The last power is the ultimate power of the redemptive God. Verse 24, look at it. The word of God increased and multiplied. I mean, that's just Luke's real quick way of saying, Herod's dead, he tried to kill the movement, it can't 
happen because the God who created those galaxies has guaranteed that his mission will endure. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth and we get to be a part of that. We are just a little people here in Eureka, but we have great power because as long as we are faithful to Christ, as long as we hold on to the gospel, as long as we see our role as his messengers, he will make sure that his word increases and multiplies in our city, in the world. This morning, as we are here this morning, we have a team of people <clears throat> who are, are worshiping with people who are speaking Spanish in Ecuador. I got a picture of Josiah playing drums. And I asked Rebecca Larson, who sent me the picture, is he playing the, the drums in English or Spanish this morning? And she said, well, it had a little Latin flair to it. The word of God will increase and it will multiply. Nothing can stop the movement. If we die like James, we get to go be with Jesus. If we are freed like Peter and let go, then we get to keep going and preaching. Peter eventually is going to make it to Rome and preach in Rome. But, but the bottom line is there is the ultimate power of the redemptive God. It can't be stopped. John Stott in his commentary on this passage says this. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting. At the end of the chapter, he is himself is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow the hostile human plans and to establish his own, his own plans in their place. This is our hope. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire stood up and started making declarations. He, he was really a, 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 an agnostic who despised Christianity and all kinds of anti-Christian rhetoric, including multiple claims where he basically said that within a hundred years, the Bible will be, will be gone. It will only be read as a relic by people who are looking back at ancient times. And Voltaire died. And within 50 years, his house was being used as a storage place for the Geneva Bible Society to store Bibles and the printing press that he used to print his anti-Christian rhetoric was being used to print Bibles. Voltaire is dead. The gospel goes on, and the, the, the power of our God will not be thwarted. And if you are his people, hang in there and pray. That's what the message is. The, the, this, this chapter is really simple. Really simple. If you oppose God you will lose. If you drift and go that direction, decide that, that it's just not true, it does not change the truthfulness of the gospel. But if you walk with Jesus and continue to be a prayerful, gospel-loving, Jesus-loving believer in Jesus, you will win. And so the call for those of us who are here today who don't know Jesus is believe. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I just want to offer you Jesus this morning. That, that the God who loves us sent his son, and if you will trust in him and turn from yourself, he will rescue and redeem you. The message of the gospel is true. And, and as we, in a few minutes, are celebrating communion, I want to just encourage you to, to prayerfully consider Jesus and cry out to him. And at the end of our service, or any time between now and then, we'll have people over here ready to pray with you. So just come pray with us and let us talk to you about what this means. Don't leave here. If you're not sure that you have a relationship with Jesus, do not leave here without having a conversation with me or somebody else about what that means. 
And for the rest of us, we are going to celebrate communion this morning as a reminder as we come back to the cross of the power of the gospel because the place that is most evident is that on Friday, Jesus seemed hopeless and defeated. And on Sunday, he defeated death, hell, and the grave forever. And so we celebrate communion as a reminder of that. And so I'm going to pray, and then John Park is going to come up here. One of our elders is going to come up here and lead us through our time of communion. Our band's going to come up here, and we're going to sing and celebrate Jesus again because we know that he is victorious, that there is no power that is greater than the gospel of Jesus. We're going to give. Our offering basket is right here, so if you're part of our church, this is a chance for you to give back. If you're not part of our church, this, this service is a gift to you. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus, you, you are free to celebrate the table with us and remember the body and blood of Jesus. And then all of us can rejoice and sing together as we consider him. Lord, we praise you for this story and the reminder that our king wins. And temporal powers like Herod come to an end. But Lord, there are times in all of our lives where it's hard to see that. And so I just pray that you would make us people of prayer. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In your name I pray. Amen.